Hello, dickheads! Like a pink laser beam of truth beaming from San Diego, California, straight to your brain hole. I am with your personal precogs, myself, David Agronoff, and... Murder! Me, Anthony Trevino. And Langhorn J. Tweed. Hello, everyone. Also known forever and moving forward as... Lang Lang Hang. (laughs) Lang Hang! All right. We're going to talk today about Minority Report, but before we do that, a little housekeeping. Next, the next episode, the main episode of Dickheads is going to be uh, The World Jones Made, which is our next in our reading series. And not The Man Who Japed. We had a long conversation about it, and it's The World Jones Made. Yes, The World Jones Made is the second Philip K. Dick book, as said by (coughs) Philip K. Dick. So, um, fuck that guy. Yeah, he called it his second book, so it is his second book. So, when you next hear us, we'll be talking about the world Jones made, but you have a little bit of time left to read the book, get it from your library, buy it from Amazon, or uh, if you want to listen to the audiobook, it is on YouTube. We have posted links to all of it on our Twitter and Instagram. You can follow us all there and you can get more details. But The World Jones Made is our next one and uh, we're excited to get back into a full-length novel. In the meantime, we're going to talk about Minority Report. Well, first we're going to talk about the story and then we'll get into the movie. Yeah, but uh, we're going to start with the story. And this was a short story that was originally published in 1956 in uh what was the name of the magazine it says in the back of the book it was written in 1954 before uh the solar lottery yeah so the minority report was published in fantastic universe of january 1956 yeah and so there were a lot more pulp magazines back then so uh but i believe it was written december 22nd of 1954 yeah uh, right before Christmas. Yeah, there were a ton of different pulp magazines, so PKD was so, spread so out all over the place. So does that mean at some point Shane Black should do the Minority Report, but set it during Christmas time? That's an interesting concept. <laughs> we'll talk about how we can fix the movie maybe at the end. But yes, there were pulp magazines out at the wazoo, and PKD was publishing all over the place, which gave him an opportunity to flesh out all kinds of ideas. And so lots of stories like Minority Report, like Paycheck, that later became movies... The Adjustment Bureau, Total Recall. Yeah, these were all short stories that were published throughout. And it, in, during the early 50s, especially before he really started getting rolling on the novels, he published a ton of short stories. And so we're probably not going to do a lot of short story episodes unless they were adapted into either movies or episodes of Philip K. Dick's Electric Dreams. But what we will be doing... Later on, when we get to it, is when we do the episode on the Three Stigmata of Palmer Eldridge, we will also be talking about The Days of Perky Pat. Which is a short story that um, originally inspired that book. On that note, uh, why don't we talk about the story? Um, Anthony, you read it most recently. We've all three re- uh, read the story recently, but uh, Anthony just reread it again today. Well, I reread like a quarter of it. So the short story, The Minority Report, is about John Anderton, who is one of the founders. I think he is the founder of the pre-crime division. And basically what pre-crime is, is three precogs essentially foretell the future of who's going to commit a crime. And the story centers around the fact that 
the John Anderton getting one of the slips with the name of a murderer and the victim on it, and it's it's pointing the finger at him. Okay, we're going to assume most people have seen the movie at this point. However, the difference is, but in this story, the precogs are kind of like mutants. They're... Man, we will get to it when I get to the part <laughs> where I complain about how much I hate the precogs in the movie. Okay, well, we will get to that. Now, the prediction, the the... The the crimes are predicted on a like basically a punch card, and they have the name of the murderer and the person the person the victim and the murderer. Correct. Correct. Yeah. Well, for those for those who don't know, a long time ago they used to use punch cards as their way of programming computers. You would have different holes that signified different things in the computer language in Holy binary. Holy fuck. I find HTML tedious and coding tedious. That sounds even worse. It was way worse because you, you would have huge stacks of these punch cards that would represent very little information. So keep in mind, this story was written in December 1954. This was state-of-the-art shit right, uh, right here with the punch cards. Uh, and, and really, if you think about it, there, there wasn't even TVs. Like, there were TVs in homes, but it wasn't as ubiquitous in every living room at that point. You know, it was probably more of an upper-class thing to, to even have TVs. So the fact that this story was written at a time when, you know, Eisenhower was still president and, and, and everything, it just really, you know, it's something to keep in mind when when you think about the story being updated even um, what nineteen years ago, when when they made the movie, uh, this story was just you know really um, ahead of its time in a lot of ways. Yeah, so. absolutely. So go on with the story. Well, I don't do. I don't think the audience wants to hear us just go beat by beat through the story. No, no, you don't. Well, just tell us what that. happens. So basically, Anderton tries to flee. He because he knows his. It, it's a matter of time before they get to him. And he ends up getting picked up by this group of people who take him to. He's accused. He's yeah. They they get it. They get it. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) So he's essentially kidnapped by this group who take him to the man he's supposed to murder. You know, they have some politico conversations about the nature of the 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 system, the pre crime system. And then afterwards, when they're he's being escorted back to his home, they're sideswiped by a bread truck. And in true PKD Very specifically fan, a bread truck. Man, it's a bread truck. Every time I read it, I kept just seeing Wonder Bread on the side, although it probably right. wasn't around then. No, Wonder Bread was around then, and I then, think. And then this group is basically, they explain to him that it's a, it's a, it's a, what is it? What would you call it, Larry? It's a, it's not a coup. It's... It sort of is a coup in a, a way, isn't it? It's a setup against him, uh, perpetrated by his his uh, his wife and the the guy who's supposed to be training under him, uh, Edward Whitwer. All right, and, we got a Whitwer in there. Yeah, I did it right. Whitmer. I did it right. Um, and so it, what per, what kind of progresses is Anderton's paranoia of trying to escape and clear his name, but really what it what what we find out later, Larry is. That the whole thing is a conspiracy by the military to regain control of the world or the society that they live in because the pre-crime division 
is currently more in control, and the military has lost its. It's more in law enforcement's control. Yeah, it's they they want to return to a, a sort of martial law system, whereas pre crime has allowed for a sort of. Uh, what would you call it? Would you would you call it a uh, a good society or or at least a not not a utopian society, but a version of a utopian society? It's a perceived utopia. I I would say that to accuse someone of a crime that they haven't committed, kind of, I I I don't know what the legality of that would really be. Well, so, you how can a, you how can you convict someone of something they've never done? It's a fascist utopia. There you go. Uh, and I just want to point out for, that uh, Wonder Bread was founded in 1921. Oh, so it, it totally could have been, been a Wonder, Wonder Bread, Bread truck. truck. Yep. And not only that, but Wonder Bread was was uh, founded in my home state of Indiana. Sweet. Which I did not know. Sweet. So there so you then, go, listeners. No wonder you're so – I'm going to call you Wonder Bread <laughs> from now on. So then the the story continues where Anderton, in order to clear his name, uh, finds out – that it's going to be impossible to clear his name. And the only way to keep pre-crime alive is to commit the murder that he's been accused of committing, which is to kill this military leader in plain open sight and make sure that pre-crime continues. Right. He, so he he's a martyr to his own cause. Yeah, he's... Right, and, and he is because, well, the whole... Basically, what what is the Minority Report, David? Well, the Minority Report is a concept that um, that existed in the legal system uh, already at that time, and this is in real life. In right? real life, yes, the Minority Report is if, IRL, as the kids say these days. So, if you have a jury, a hung jury, and the jury couldn't was was locked at let's say eight guilty, three innocent, then the three who had the innocent vote would be considered the minority vote and they would always when a when a trial failed they would do a minority report to try and figure out why those three voted in order to possibly go back and have another trial and convict or whatever or to basically to just study why those three people did not vote to convict prosecutors were really into this so this, this is in the rare uh 11 person juries that you well, might not see very often well, right. I just picked a number. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that but, rare two-person jury, which wouldn't even work for that. Okay, so in the pre-crime system, in in minor in the story Minority Report, you have three precogs. So it takes three of them to have a vision of what's going to happen, and for the card to be punched out. So the concept is is that there's always a little bit of doubt in the precogs, and that one of the three sometimes uh, does not report the same. And then for that reason, that's the the concept of the minority report in this story. And so... Well, it's it, that the future is not set in stone. Right. There's always a possibility that the person that committed this pre-crime will have not committed that pre-crime. So in a, in, in a way that I think it's overlooked a lot of times is that the title Minority Report has multiple meanings, and what PKD was doing was actually an analogy for the possibility of the future changing is the Minority Report, in a sense. And so, and I didn't even get that the first, like, 
time I read the story and, you know, in my head, I kept thinking about the movie with the, you know, where's my minority report? Right. Where's the minority report, which we'll get to. Yeah. But in the concept of the story, I think what PKD was trying to do was with this concept of a, of pre, pre-crime and um, psychic crime prediction, which, you know, is some is a theme that comes up in, in a lot of his stories. And you have, for example, in Solar Lottery, which we did last month, that had the precog assassins, right? So in that in this concept, he's really kind of exploring the idea of doubt in the justice system in a really cool way. So yeah, it's a cool story. Uh, for yeah. 1954, it's really ahead of its time. It's you know a lot of uh, a lot of Philip K. Dick short stories from that time get poo pooed off as being pulp action stories that that are not as sophisticated as the stuff that came later but in in a lot of ways the story is quite sophisticated yeah it to Um, me is a more of a low-key thriller than an action film yeah type or action story excuse me yeah and 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 certainly you can see that there is potential to make an action story out of it and to to do interesting things there's potential to do it that's all the movie is i know and and (laughs) you know the, the movie succeeds to varying degrees for me more than it does for you guys, but we all agree. It's well, we're, I'm getting ahead of myself. Yeah. But you know, I think the concept of the short story is much more intelligent than is given, than is given credit a lot of times because it's seen as just one of these pulpy, uh, PKD throwaway short stories. And it's not, it's very uh, nuanced and a very well thought out, uh, short story. So, you know, I personally, I thought, um, and it's longer than I expected. I expected like maybe a 10 pager. How right? long is it, Anthony? It's like about 30 pages. Or yeah, something. it's about 30 pages. So it's yeah. almost, it's not quite novella length, but it's, it's, it's a it's good, it's just a long short story. It's a very long short story. And, um, which is, you know, when I was growing up that I, you know, like one of my favorite authors was Clive Barker and he wrote very long short stories. Oh yeah, Totally. Um, where you're just pushing the boundaries, and I think this PKD story did. And there's a lot of shorter PKD short stories that are out there, but I, well, think... I think I think the length gives this story a little bit more breathing room. Yeah. Than than had it been ten pages or so. I mean, what would have been the story? Anderton gets a punch card. He goes, "Oh shit, it's me." And then what? You yeah. Cut out twenty pages of him trying to figure it out, and just go straight to him saying, "Well, we got the minority report. Let's see what that says." Well, yeah, they would have to eliminate the military aspect. He would have had to uh, eliminate the military aspect because that's that's what takes up the bulk of the story is the idea that the military wants to control all of us. So, so question, guys, theme wise. Um, now, after reading this, do you think this could have been a, a PKD novel? Would it have been better served to be a novel? Because I, I think I think it would it should have been a novel. I think actually. it would have been a great novel. I uh, the one thing that I found lacking in the story was character development, which is often said about Philip K. Dick's stories, uh, the, the short stories, the short stories. Yeah, uh, I definitely think using some of the things that the movie actually changed in the story could have made it a, a an actual novel i think for one thing setting up and showing how pre-crime worked and maybe seeing anderton work another case before 
uh, you know, just starting with his card being delivered. Well, I think it also would have given us the opportunity to see, to, to get more time with Leopold Kaplan, because what I like about the short story is that it pits two people against each other, one who's supposed to be the supposed murderer and the other one who is the victim. And I think had this been a novel, we would have been able to kind of explore the thought process of, I know that someone's supposed to kill me. How can I thwart it? Right. And in a novel, you could have also done a lot more looking into the society and the culture and how uh, a post-crime uh, New York City, because it takes place in New York City, right? Correct. Like, yeah. yeah. Like a pro- post-crime New York City functions. because it, Right. In that, in that fascist utopia. <laughs> yeah. And was it... Was it national in the short story? I don't remember. Like, I know that's a big part of the plot of the movie is is pre crime going national, but uh, I do not recall. I yeah. don't think it's. I don't no, think they say anything City. about it yeah. in the story. Hit Plus, we would have we would have gotten a lot more wackadoo science. Oh, I know. Yeah, if it had been a novel, we would have had more wackadoo. Science. But the, there are also... some serious. Hold on. You guys converse amongst yourselves for a minute. Had it been a novel, there <laughs> definitely would have been a scene where they end up going off to the colonies. Of the end. Right. Um, they practically do anyway. Yeah, the, and and that is one big difference between the short story and the movie is that that there are mentions of, of an Alpha Centauri colony and some more like yes. Seri- well, not just a mention. They actually at the end, the uh, Anderton and his wife go to one of those colonies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or at least are heading there. Yeah, and then there's really a concept of um, in the in the short story of like. You know, hey, give yourself up for this crime, and and you know, if you go to this work camp, you know, you might even enjoy it and like it, which is like a totally different mentality yeah, than, than 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 the movie had. The you know? the movie does something that uh, is much better in that sense. Yeah, that raises the stakes, but yeah. we'll get we'll get there eventually. Yeah, I mean, for me, I think Minority Report is. Uh, a really outstanding short story, um, but it definitely has a few flaws and has some things that it definitely could have been better. You know, this was early PKD. This was very early. He hadn't even, he was on the verge of publishing his first novel, but he hadn't quite published his first novel. So and, what was right. the, when was the, the first story he ever wrote? When did that happen? The first one that he ever sold? No, no, that he ever wrote. Well, he wrote stories as far back as high school, as far as okay, I know. okay. Yeah. Here, I, I I got you some wackadoo science. Right on. In the gloomy half darkness, the three idiots sat babbling. Every incoherent utterance, every random syllable, was analyzed, compared, reassembled in the form of visual symbols, transcribed on conventional punch cards, and ejected into various coded slots. Right. Come on, y'all. <laughs> <laughs> so the precogs are just sitting there, like mumbling. Um, yeah, they're going like basketball feet, basketball chair, feet, cardboard. Larry barbecue, naked ballast point, whatever. And then somebody Rainbow like puts them plane. together, and then is like, Rainbow "Oh, so and so is going to get murdered on Tuesday at nine o'clock." Exactly. Because, okay. Yeah, I see. That's they're basically they- mumblecore vegetables that spit <laughs> out this information that we then through oh some Rube Goldberg machine decode. Yes. Wow. Which which they which they definitely have in the movie, yeah, yeah, yeah they definitely a little but bit of the it. movie. Mm, eh. I don't know. I mean, there's some things I think that the, the well, we'll get once we get to the movie, we'll talk about the difference. Yeah, we'll argue about it. But um, 
yeah, so is there anything else really in the short story that you guys want to talk about as far as without comparing it to the movie on its own? Larry? No, I don't think so. I think we're ready. Um, I think we're, I, I, we're I, almost there. I, I enjoyed it, but it has all of the kind of trappings of a Philip K. Dick story that I find kind of, I, I wouldn't say annoying, but they're what I would call stereotypical dick tropes. Yeah. You know? And other but other than that, I, I think the point of the story is less about the characters and more about the idea of the minority report in living in a world where pre crime is a reality. Right. David. Well that's the great thing about short stories is you don't you don't have to fulfill all oh, aspects of a novel. You can concentrate <laughs> Whoa, David, when did you sound like Larry? <laughs> you can concentrate on one aspect of a story or just right. an idea or sure. just a character. Right. And and that is, you know, the strength of, of the short story, especially from the PKD standpoint. And and um, I really do wish he expanded this idea because it is a really great idea. I think a couple I think one of the reasons why you see certain short stories get made into movies is because they are really cool concepts that can be blown out. Right. Um, and should have been novels. Um, some more than others work better as movies um i still can't understand that they're going to turn second variety into a whole tv show that is a little, yeah that'll be interesting that'll be a little much maybe um but i mean even if you just look down the line at adjustment bureau paycheck some of these ones that all got turned into movies whether the movies were good or not they were ideas that could have been novels well and, remember this one did get turned into a tv show yeah a that's very, true. very very bad tv show Boo. Well, it not this it was it was a sequel to the movie. It wasn't it really didn't have much to do with the short story, to be honest. Well so yeah, now we're at the movie because the movie itself is what happens when you take a really good idea and then you just ruin it. Ruin is a strong word to me and uh ruined. <laughs> You will, uh, listeners, uh, just soon discover that between the three, I am the minority report of this precog circle, <laughs> uh, because I thought the movie was flawed, but okay, but I'm kind of getting ahead of myself. So let's talk about the journey this short story made from Philip K. Dick's typewriter to Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> I'm already bored. Okay, well, well, go play your fucking fruit ninja or something. No, I'm just, just going to get It's not fruit ninja, Larry. All right. So Candy Crush Saga. <laughs> so, um in the 90s, there was a very popular Philip K Dick movie made called Total Recall, starring Arnold Schwarzenegger, and in the wake of that, the producers wanted to do another Philip K Dick story as a sequel to Total Recall, and they bought the rights to Minority Report. And the idea was going to be that they were going to take the same story of Minority Report and use Quaid, the character from Total Recall, and put him in the Anderton role and set Minority Report on Mars, but have like a whole pre-crime thing. Oh, so. one can dream, David. Yeah. One can dream. I, actually, I would have liked that story. Well, you know, I I don't like the use of Minority Report being shoved into that. I just would like to have seen a Total Recall sequel. Well, I, I, I would agree with that, but if we're going to do Minority Report, I think that would be better than the hot pile of shit I got. <laughs> uh, see, I actually like this. I, I don't know. I'm fine with this move, but we'll get to that. Uh, but, I mean, if you had Schwarzenegger there, you would have been, uh, come on, 
Where's my minority report? Oh, yeah, and it would have been amazing. Give it to me now. Yeah, and, um, you know, got to get to Mars and all that. And they were going to do that. It They hired a screenwriter named John Cohen. And as far as we can tell, this is his only screenwriting credit mm-hmm. is he did two drafts. Uh, he did one uh, Total Recall sequel version of the script. Then they eventually decided that was not the way they wanted to go, but they still wanted to do Minority Report. And so for a while, the director connected to it was uh, Jan or Jean DeBont, who is the director of Speed, the action movie Speed. I don't know if I don't know that he's I don't know what else he's directed besides Speed. Yeah, stand by. That's why we have this little pocket computer called a cell phone. Yeah, the interwebs. So while they're doing that, so that for a while, uh, they. We're trying to work out this version with him directing with the John Cohen script. It, what was his name? Uh, Jean Dubon. I'll just look up. Jean, Jean Dubon. Jean Dubon. They, they were going to do this version. It didn't happen. But then um, Spielberg and Tom Cruise, who had been wanting to work together forever, uh, kind of came together. I believe it was Tom Cruise's production company. was was He had been circling the, the Jean Dubon version and had been considered... So DeBont has directed Speed. Yes. Twister. Oh, God. Speed 2 Cruise Control. Wow. 1999's remake of The Haunting, which I fucking hated. Right. And Laura Croft Tomb Raider The Cradle of Life, which no one no one cares about. Those early <laughs> Tomb Raider movies, they suck. So he directed Speed. Um... No, no, <laughs> Twister. Twister. Well, yeah, he did. Bill Paxton was in that. Damn right. Yeah, okay. Show yeah, the movie respect. still sucks. Now I bet you think Dante's Peak sucks too. Yeah, of course. <laughs> okay, so um, so Jan DeBont left the project, but Tom Cruise's production company apparently acquired the rights. He took it to Spielberg, and for a long time, um, they they were going to do this right after Mission Impossible Two, and for they had the movie set up with the John Cohen script. With it was going to be Tom Cruise and Kate Blanchett was going to play the precog Agatha. Matt Damon was going to play Whitwer. Matt um, Ian McKellen was going to play the role uh, that Max von Sydow eventually played, uh, Burgess. Jenna Elfman was going to play Laura Anderton, and Javier Bardem was at some point was in the works for possibly playing Whit- Whitwer before Matt Damon took the role. So they got really close to doing it, but uh, thanks to John Woo uh, and the the overshoot the the reshoots for Mission Impossible Two, they couldn't do it in time. For Spielberg went off and did AI instead, um, and then they circled back to Minority Report, and that gave them a chance to hire Scott Frank to do a fantastic screenwriter yeah scott frank the screenwriter and at the time he was mostly known for doing elmore leonard movies out of sight and get shorty were his most popular films he'd done those with i know out of sight with steven soderbergh just absolutely fantastic well he he also did dead again and little man tate at the time yeah a, a, a wide range of movies that he had written yeah, and for those of you now who, who might be interested in Scott Frank's work, he went on to direct 
a movie called The Lookout that Anthony's a big fan of. I haven't seen it yet. It's an awesome movie. Yeah, and um, he directed Walk Among the Tombstones with Liam Neeson, which is a pretty good serial killer movie. And he recently wrote and directed the entire series Godless on Netflix, which is a great Western series. He also wrote Logan. Yeah. Oh, yeah, wrote Logan. So Scott Frank was a good hire (laughs) by Steven Spielberg. However... Maybe not the best hire for this project because, I mean, he admitted in interviews that he wasn't a science fiction fan. Which, which that's a huge problem. As a, as a science fiction fan, yeah. I want all of the people that write science fiction to at least like science fiction. Right. And I mention this because we, we're all fans of his work. We all like things that Scott Frank has done. But... This is not his finest moment. As a <laughs> it certainly is. I would say of everything I've seen, or it certainly isn't. I I think of everything of his I've seen, this is my least favorite. Yeah, and we talking about this movie earlier, like we talked about who was a better screenwriter for this project, and we, we all agreed that another screenwriter that Spielberg worked with often at the time was David Kep who wrote War of the Worlds for Spielberg. Um, he also wrote uh, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, but... Um, <laughs> but we won't talk about that. But David Kep also uh, wrote and directed <laughs> Stir of Echoes and wrote Panic Room. This The first Spider-Man movie, the Sam Raimi Spider-Man movie, was David Kep's script. So David Kep, I think, would have been a better hire. Um, he was more reverent of source material. And if you, I mean, you look at... He updated uh, Stir of Echoes from the novel written in the 50s and did a great job. Of yeah, that movie, is, that movie is brilliant. Yeah, Stir of Echoes is way underrated. So I think we all agree that David Kep might have been a better hire yes. for, for, for this project. Yes. But anyways, so after AI, so Spielberg was coming straight off of AI to uh, do this. And Tom Cruise literally walked off the set of Vanilla Sky with Cameron Crowe. And, and a week later was filming Minority Report. But one other interesting thing about the production, and then I'll shut up about the production, is that five years before they actually ended up making the movie, Tom Cruise and Spielberg put together a team of futurists at a hotel in Santa Monica, and they had like a weekend-long conference talking about the technology that they wanted to see in the story. And so they put a yeah, lot of... Who, who were these futurists? Um, I don't really going to name all of them. Well, I'd like to just know, was it like Dr. Seuss and (laughs) no, no, they were, they were serious futurists. I mean, no, they weren't. (laughs) What the hell is bind foam or a six stick? It's ridiculous. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. But some of the technology, like the way that packs, well, Spielberg admitted that jetpacks were completely unrealistic, that he just wanted to do those. That he, I actually did see a quote that Spielberg just said, I just wanted to do jetpacks because it reminded him of 50s sci-fi that he grew up on. And, so. it, and it looks pulpy and goofy as shit when they fly down on their jetpacks in an alley. <laughs> right. But some of the technology is pretty realistic for what could be coming with, like, the eye scans that, like, with the targeted ads and the... Um, and, and, uh, the way the, the, um, the self-guided car. So with the self-guided cars and the, the targeted ads and those kinds of things, I think are, are technologies that they really tried to like predict 
something that, that was coming. And believe me, I listened, I have a futurist podcast I listened to called team human. And they were just talking about uh, in the episode that I just listened to about how futurists can get really silly with themselves. And there's a whole concept of smart cities and how like that these futurists almost like overthink these cities. And so I certainly think that some of the technology and in, in this is, is a little overthought. <laughs> overthought. <laughs> Maybe okay. a little bit, but it just seems a little. It seems mostly juvenile rather than overthought. Right. Well, and I think to a degree he was trying to Spielberg was, you know, at certain times some of the technology was servicing the idea that this is based off of a fifties pulp sci-fi story, and I think sometimes things like the jetpacks work a little better than than other things. But you know, uh, can I do my list now? Can I do my list of advertisers yeah so one problem that larry had with this movie is well there there's so many advertisements in this movie it's ridiculous for a rich super rich filmmaker who can make any movie he wants to spielberg loves to put real live ads in his movie if you watch close encounters of the third kind which is a fantastic movie there is a full 30-second Budweiser commercial in that movie. <laughs> well, he didn't no have the reason. power back then. For no reason. Well, no reason other than Budweiser probably kicked them a nice chunk of change for the movie. Sure, we could we could guess at that. But even this movie has so many ads in it, the IMDb trivia is look at all the ads that are in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So but, these these are just some of the ones that I saw. There's a a they watch cops at one point. There's Lexus, Nokia, Guinness, Aquafina, Gap, The Gap, uh, Ben and Jerry's, Lego, Burger King, Pepsi, Reebok. Did you go back and rewatch this just to find the ads? <laughs> and the uh, you, you did. You might have. And you whatever did, that whatever you? that watch is, Bulgar, Bulgaria, Bulgaria, Bulgaria. I don't know. That was terrible. So that's you went back and watched it again for those. Last that is a engines. lot of ads, and that's just about. That might be three quarters of the ads in there. I admit that I went and bought a bottle of Aquafina after we watched the movie. You had to. I had to. The I movie told compelled. you. To. I didn't. Okay, so um, yeah, the ads are a thing, but <laughs> um, in fairness, I just want to point out that Spielberg and. Cruz did not take a salary on this movie that in order to keep and that to put That's, that money towards oh, the budget. Oh, that is disingenuous. Good that is for totally them. disingenuous. They got points on the movie. <laughs> well, sure, they got, they got paid way more than taking a salary. I don't even care if they didn't take a salary. They both had enough money to where you can make that decision. So, good job, I guess. <laughs> You want a fucking cookie for that? Like, no, I know. It's like Tom Brady negotiating his contract into bonuses so he can get a new O-lineman. I understand <laughs> this. And I understand that Tom Brady is married to one of the richest women in the world, too, so he can take less money. But I'm sorry. We're talking sports for a second there. But <laughs> Oh, it's all right. I'll just ignore it like I always do. All right. So I understand that Tom Cruise and Steven Spielberg not taking a salary is like boo-hoo. It's not a big deal. But... It's not boo-hoo. They still got rich off the movie. Maybe not this movie. Um, but They did. Well, it wasn't the most ginormous 
blockbuster was it i, I mean not that i'm aware i guess we could look up how much it made but but um, i'm sure it's not 25 bucks <laughs> no but i know that they that they were struggling to get to the budget they needed at one point and and so that they had originally agreed to a salary and then struggling huh to get to the budget that they that they wanted that they needed for the for the film to make it look as awesome as it did no it, <laughs> it it's awful it's the most confused cinematography i've seen in a movie in a long time yeah that's uh spielberg taking risks right so uh larry how much did it end up making uh us gross was 132 million uh worldwide gross was 358 million so 358 million worldwide yep it made its money back and made a profit okay so yeah they did make quite a bit of money off this yeah of course they did it's a steven spielberg tom cruise vehicle all right so uh we didn't actually talk about the story but i i'm i'm guessing that most people <laughs> have like either seen the movie in the past or or watched it again before um listening to this and well, i know and if you listened to it before if you watched it before listening to this i'm sorry it's a really long shitty movie <laughs> but let's let's start with the good let's start with the at least some of the the good things they did okay or or at least some of the good things they tried to do all right which were what larry okay well for one as a uh, as david said a little bit ago they they were trying to make a modern noir film. And while they failed at that through many different uh, techniques, and we'll talk about how the they actually shot the movie, which is one of the biggest failures in my opinion, uh, they were trying to do different things and create something that no one has seen before. And I, oh, well, I they succeeded that. in in seeing something I haven't seen before. I guess. Not in a good way, though. Not in a good way. Oh, shit. By the way, somebody outside your house is jamming John Cougar Mellencamp right now. (laughs) So I guess that's going to be the the music we open this episode with. (laughs) It's so good. Um, Okay, they've they've driven on. Sorry. I just... They also tried to... uh, They did did take some things that were in the story and make them better. Like the consequences... For committing a a pre crime, much better, much better. Yeah, that that it, it is a better writing choice. Is to so the consequences in the movie are that if you are accused of a pre crime, you are put into suspended animation in this like really creepy, like kind of mausoleum that's like with these tubes, and they put you in there, and Blake. Nelson from Oh Brother Where Out Thou plays organ music throughout your entire life and you have these reoccurring dreams while while you sleep away your sentence. Right, which is much worse than just being in a detention center with a bunch of other people who never committed a crime. And you might kind of like it. uh, As as they say in the story. story. Yeah, in the short story they say you might kind of like being in the detention center. And there are some scenes they got right in this movie. Yeah. Uh, The Terry Gilliam-esque uh, eyeball scene yeah so when um and and a lot of the best scenes in the movie come from so they track you by your your eyeballs and that's how they you so when anderton knows that he wants to that he has to break back into pre-crime he has to switch out his eyeballs and probably the 
the best scene of the movie, in my opinion, the scene that really, really works is when he goes to a, a surgeon to get his his eyeballs exchanged. Played no. by who, Anthony? Peter Stromare. <laughs> yeah. Um, my my champion character actor. Well, we'll talk about the character actors here in a little bit, but we'll come back to Peter Stormare. But this scene... We better. Where, yeah, the scene where he goes to the surgeon and the the pre-crime cops catch up to Anderton and they use spider drones to track him through the building in a very David Fincher-esque, let's yeah, face panic it... panic room. Yeah, this really ripped off... This had to be after Panic Room, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, um, yeah it was. Yeah, and and basically Spielberg I think. used I'll look used the style from Panic Room to basically there were no ceilings and it was cut away and the the scene with the spider drones was fucking awesome. And I personally think that that scene anyways was 2002 so same year. Same, same year. year. Huh. Well, they're probably friends. They may have been talking. Right. <laughs> uh <laughs> Yeah, I wonder which one came first. Which Panic Room, written by David Kep. That whole spider drone scene to me was fantastic. And for me, even though the movie was really long and, and kind of arduous to sit through this last time, the spider drone scene for me was like, I remember my experience seeing in the theater. The first thing I remembered after the movie was over was, fuck yeah, that spider drone scene was really cool. Panic Room came out first in uh, March of 2002, then... Minority Report was June of 2002. Hmm. So you can't say that he necessarily ripped off Fincher. That they made no, it. no. Yeah. So they well, were... Fincher did it better anyway. So yeah, Fincher typically does most things better. Yeah. <laughs> Fincher. Yeah. If you haven't seen Panic Room, we uh, all three precogs here agree. Uh, it's worth it, it's worth watching. Yeah, so if you were considering watching Minority Report, we're suggesting you not do that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just listen to this. We'll fill you in and <laughs> go watch my uh, or uh, Panic Room. So yeah, that's one of the things that was really good was the spider drone scene. Um, and I, I think well, the, the uh, what's his face as Whitwer was a. Great oh yeah, we, we all liked um, Colin Farrell. Colin Farrell, who replaced Matt Damon from the original production uh, in the role of Whitwer, who is basically uh, Anderton's um, antagonist and kind of a red herring in the red snapper. Yeah, um, <laughs> you have to have watched a Perfect Getaway to get that reference, but um, the red herring in the starring sto- Billy Bob Thornton. Uh no, perfect. Oh, what am I thinking of? Perfect Getaway is the David Tui movie um with um what's his name from Justified. I'm thinking of a simple plan, huh? Steven yeah. St- it's got Steven Zahn and uh Timothy Oliphant. Oh. Timothy. Oh, it's a great movie. Really good underrated. Yeah, underrated Wait, is that movie. the is that the like torture porn movie? No. No, no I'm thinking no. of Teresa's. You know what, guys? I'm going to show myself out. <laughs> uh, anyways, Perfect Getaway is not what this is about. Um, but so, we are talking about red snappers. Yeah, so the red herring in it is that, you know, you're meant to think that Colin Farrell is going to be the big villain of the piece. And of course... Yeah, but a quarter of the way into this movie, you know he's not. And why is that, Larry? Because the he shows <laughs> no sign of being involved in the conspiracy whatsoever. No, but they set up the the kind of... 
the tension between Anderton and Wit were like almost right away. So 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 he does have a bad guy lean to him, but that's that's not the the biggest reason that you kind of figure out that he's not. I think it might be um, something about introducing a villainous actor. Is that what we're getting at? <laughs> yeah, that's what I was. That was the bait I was throwing at you that you did not <laughs> that you just swam around. <laughs> yeah, just looking at well, what's that bait doing on that hook there for? Right. So, so why, uh, <laughs> Larry, did you not ever believe that Whitwer was actually okay, the so antagonist? <laughs> so Max von Sydow <laughs> comes onto the scene and basically says, hey, look at me. I won't be around much, so I'm definitely not the villain. See you in the third act, audience. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was so telegraphed that Max von Sydow was going to be the villain from the guy that was the villain in... Every 80s and 70s movie that was ever made. Which is weird to me because he's still the hero of The Exorcist, but whatever, you know. Like, right. that's the, one, uh, the from, one. From The Exorcist, he went on to be the villain in Three Days of the Condor, Conan, Strange Brew, Ghostbusters 2, Never Say Never Again. It was Conan uh, the Destroyer, right? I think He so. wasn't in The Barbarian. That was James Earl Jones. Yeah. Okay. Well, okay, he played a lot of villains. He was goddamn. He was Ming the Merciless, right? And Vigo. He was really great in Flash Gordon. But, anyways, <laughs> um, Max von Sydow was yeah pretty obvious. But you don't introduce von Sydow, a... not Max von Sydow. That makes him sound like a like a fashion designer. You don't introduce a six foot four, well known actor like Max von Sydow what in the first act have to do with anything. He's an intimidating person. That's what I'm saying. He towers over everyone else in the movie. Yeah, but see, at the same time, like older actors like that from foreign countries, they generally play wizards, right? <laughs> so he could have been a wizard. You could have just well, he know. was basically a, a the sci-fi version of a wizard, wasn't he? Right now, if Ian McKellen had been cast in the role, would you have felt the same way? I wouldn't at that time. I wouldn't have known enough about Ian McKellen. As an actor. So you wouldn't have thought, oh, he's definitely the villain? No. Okay. I mean, so. it, w- it definitely wouldn't have been telegraphed as much. So He could have been the kindly... I, I just don't ever see Max von Sydow as the kindly father figure. Right. No, he's like that father figure that says, go stand out in the cold and learn to be a man. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right, so you know what we kind of skipped over is we didn't really talk about the the story, the actual plot of the, actual the movie, actual plot and and the story. So, uh, one last thing about the general movie before we get into like the differences between the stories, just about the the, the sheer number of character actors that um, Spielberg is able to pull in. If you have a director like Spielberg or Scorsese, a lot of times they can get some pretty well known that guy or that gal actors, and by that I mean. Actors that when you see them on screen, you're like, oh, yeah, that guy or that gal, but you don't know their name. Right. Um, and he's got a lot of those in, in this movie from uh, – but most importantly, we all – we had Frank Grillo, who was like pre-crime. So we're going to give all the names of the uh... – And you're not going to know who they are. <laughs> but if you saw their faces, you'd know. Right. You'd know uh, – well – You know, wh- that guy, Frank Grillo. Or that he was in those very popular purge movies. Or that guy who was the 
really bad villain in Justified on on FX, but I don't know his name. Also, most recently in Game Over, man. Yeah, we're talking is, about Neil McDonough. Neil McDonough. I but before we looked up his name the other day watching the movie, I had no idea what his name was. You guys, I think we got ahead of ourselves. Did we just we never told them what this movie's about? I we're not ahead of do. ourselves. We're, we're we going to get to that. They've All seen right. the movie. They know what it's about. All right, y'all. We're going to talk about the differences here in a bit. Yeah, we're not going to uh, explain what the movie is about. We're just going to talk about the differences. Two of my favorite. Okay, boss. Um, two of my Don't favorite. Don't make me smack you again. Two of my favorite character, little um, actors in this. Uh, Clea Scott, who was um, Frank Black's partner in the third season of Millennium, uh, plays like, has like, two lines but to me that was kind of cool and then but peter stormare as the surgeon we all agree peter stormare is um, if you don't know him he is one of the best character actors look him up right away as soon as you see him you will go oh yeah that guy who always plays villains he played satan in constantine he played um he was in arnold schwarzenegger's last stand that he was so great in that. He was really good, really over the top in that movie. Yeah, but for me, the Peter Stormare role that always jumps to my mind is Dino Velvet in 8mm, and where he plays like a a guy who makes snuff films, and he's really fucking great in that movie. And I personally think he is great in the video game uh, Before Dawn, where he plays a psychotic psychiatrist. So we mentioned all these that guy actors. Wait, wait, wait. Let's let's hear what Anthony. Anthony, when is a uh, when is Stormare his best for you? Um, like his best role? Yeah, probably as Satan in the that terrible Constantine movie, <laughs> which oh, has oh, the, not like the in, greatest supporting cast of all time. Oh yeah, ever all the supporting cast in that movie is awesome. But I think that's his, my favorite role of his, followed closely by his uh, role in Fargo. Ah. Yes. Yeah. Um. He's great in that. I. He's great in John Wick Two. The the brief cameo he has in that. Right. Yeah. I. You. You get Peter Stormare is the type of actor you love to see because he's like your weird funny uncle. Yeah. But we're not just geeking out on all the other things Peter Stormare did. He in his brief screen time in this movie in Minority Report, he is great. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Uh, he's as, he's at full bananas yeah he's full bananas he and if you and if you look up on imdb's trivia like he um he improvised lines in swedish because he's swedish so his character is obviously swedish and he says some like crazy things like in swedish in the movie he he just he really sells being bananas in this movie and in short screen time he elevates the movie just a little bit and has a performance that's like really worth it and just is really great. So we all love Peter Stormare in this and it's kind of funny how much we love Peter Stormare in this. <laughs> well, but, because uh, he's a guy we we were where we all grew up with movies right that he's been in. So we yeah. all have kind of a fondness for him. Uh, I, Big Lebowski. Yeah, he's yeah, in he the was, Big Lebowski. Yeah, he was great in that. He's, he's in, one he's, of the nihilists. He's, he's the Dino Velvet in 8mm. Which right. I already mentioned if you weren't Texting on your phone he when says, I was talking. I was answering an important question, David. Okay, sure. About a about about the podcast I'm cheating on you guys with. Ooh. Okay. Yeah. So, um, I know, oh, I know, a, I, know a, I know you are fruit ninjaing. <laughs> he was in lockout. He was lockout. great in lockout. He's in American Gods. 
He's in. Uh, all right, oh all right. God, he's in Bruiser. He's in a ton of stuff. <laughs> but he he also represents one of the biggest problems in this movie. How so? Which is at times, while it is attempting to be a futuristic noir film, sometimes those characters that you find in noir films, those wacky characters, are a little bit too wacky in this. It almost seems like it's a satire of noir. Okay, yeah. That- yeah, and but, but I don't think that that's more – I don't think that that's totally at play with his scene. Yeah, I'm talking about the whole movie now. Right, but you said that it was representative of one of the movie's flaws is yes. his scene. How I, I don't understand the correlation. They totally over-the-top – Anthony? Yes. You were just being difficult. No, I'm asking you to explain yourself. You made okay. a statement. I want you to explain it. So, I, I disagree with you too, Larry, but go ahead. No, I didn't say I disagreed. <laughs> I say he's representative uh, because there's a lot of other scenes where there are similar over-the-top performances that don't work because they aren't Peter Stormare or the actors aren't as well-versed in that type of role as Peter Stormare is. Well, and I think certain actors okay. sell – I think Peter Stormare sells it fine – Colin Farrell sells it really well. He's really good. But he's not he's over not the top. A character. He's not an over-the-top yeah. character actor. No. I, mean, I will say Peter Stromer is kind of the scene that he's in is like ripped right out of a Terry Gilliam movie. And, and in that regard, I think the scene feels misplaced in this, in this overly blown out movie, which I think they were trying to go for when you're in society, everything's – it's all these like – Chrome blue, white, and now you're in the dirty, like, villain well, let's, area. Let's talk about that for a second, just for a second. The uh, film stock that they used and the process they used. David, you know, you know that, right? Yeah, I'm going to pull up the quote. But um, there was uh, – so basically uh, Spielberg works with the same DP all the time. His name is uh, – That is director of photography. Yeah, his director of photography. <laughs> Sorry. Did, you just, did you just, like, explain what that meant? He did. Do you know how many people don't know what that means? That thinks true. it means something absolutely different. Well, yeah. what, what what do they think it means, Larry? Well, it, it <laughs> might, sometimes it can mean double penetration. Oh, oh stop! All right, so Giannis Kaminsky <laughs> did, ha, has done almost uh, almost all of Spielberg's movies in this era, and basically he was like the house DP for for Spielberg's. <laughs> Film company. <laughs> what? Anyways, so I had this quote from Spielberg. Did he do uh, Saving Private Ryan? He did. Okay. He also did Schindler's List and... No. Yeah, so... Um, Not that movie Skindler's List? <laughs> Please stop. Please stop. Um, Never stop, Anthony. So, so Spielberg believed... Very much that this was his big whodunit murder mystery. It was the first time he'd done a movie that he considered noir. And so he said, we decided to put the film through a process called bleach bypass, which essentially takes out all of the technicolor from your face and makes your face much more pale. What it does is it takes those happy, delightfully rosy skin tones away from people who are naturally that way and washes everything out. Then we shot some of the scenes on 800 ASA film stock, which creates a kind of graininess that makes it feel like an old film noir. But it 
doesn't. It makes me feel like I'm watching a soft focus ad from the early 90s. Yeah. It sucks. It, it came out more like a perfume ad than it did a uh, noir film. 100%. Larry, yeah. you got it. And, um, yeah, so that, that was, that was a huge problem with, uh, so, um, so, so let's talk about the, the plot and the differences. So the, the story of Minority Report, the film is pretty close, you know, comparatively to some adaptations, like, for example, like the, I don't know, Ender's Game that came out a couple of years ago. Um, did not see it. All right, so this is much more faithful in some regards to some tones. It makes it takes a lot of liberties with the story, but I think we all agree that in order to flesh out a whole story for a movie or a novel, you're going to have to change some things, correct? Right. So, yeah. and Larry and I both agree that at least the two of us agree that the stakes with the whole storyline, okay, lot well, the, the stakes in the movie are much better than, than the story. So the story right. is, is... I don't think I agree with that. I, I think that they're different, but I don't know if they're better. In... Well, I don't know if better is the word, but greater is definitely. There's more... <laughs> oh, all right. I see no, what, what he mean. means is there's more stakes. There's more stakes, sure. But I think that being the, the subject of a unit that you're responsible for and are now the target of is is, is really interesting to me. Yeah, it's not to say that the story wasn't interesting, but so the the plot of the movie, the difference is John Anderton is not the founder of pre-crime. He's just a, a regular cop. We see a lot more in the movie of the process of pre-crime, and I think that that was a smart way to start off the story, showing uh, another case and showing Anderton being good at his job and predicting a, a, a crime. So you didn't want just one long take of a bunch of people sitting in chairs going, I'm fucking bumblebee tuna. So the way that the pre-crime, the precogs work in this story and, and they have is that they lay in a little salt bath pool. <laughs> they live in a salt bath pool. And, and they're very attractive. They have. They are. Yeah. And they're not mutants. And they say they just randomly and in the dumbest scene of the whole movie, which I cannot believe Spielberg did not like cut out in the editing room. Agatha, one of the precogs, just randomly at the beginning says, "Murder." It is the corniest thing in the whole fucking movie. I could not stop laughing when I saw. I don't can't believe none of us could stop laughing. Right. So, and I should pull away the curtain here. We all watched the movie together before recording. And uh, I mean, it's just as hokey and dumb as their three names, which is just a little, huh? Ah, ah, you get it? It's Agatha, a, it's a, it's a Dashiell, mystery movie. And Arthur, dumb, which, which are it is a tribute, a little homage to mystery writers. So, right, uh, he was trying I, to display how they are making a noir film. I rolled my my eyes rolled so far back I could see my brain. But I could actually see, like, if you were naming... But see, the thing is... But you can see how these are non-science fiction people making a science fiction movie where... And then, yeah, they're not even sci-fi writers. Are you saying Spielberg's not a non-sci-fi guy? I'm going to call bullshit on that. Well, did you see Ready Player One? Not saying that no, it's I really sci-fi. It's more fantasy, that. but... Ish. I don't think... I don't Spielberg's think he's made, necessarily a sci-fi guy. He's made some of the best science fiction movies ever. He's also made some of the worst. Like What? Like Close Encounters, like yeah. um, E.T. Close Encounters is no fire in the sky. <laughs> hey, now. <laughs> Shit. Close Encounters is a fantastic movie. I came here 
to talk real, y'all. <laughs> Close Encounters <laughs> is a fantastic movie. Yeah, he, it's good. I like it. AI is terrible. It sure, it sure I is. I like AI. I don't uh, like E.T. AI would have been a better movie if Stanley Kubrick had made it. I will admit that, but I like AI. Kubrick. Kubrick. So, yeah. There they, should be no aliens in Indiana Jones. All right, yeah, okay. we don't talk about that, Larry. Well, so why not? We're talking about Spielberg's Spielberg great history podcast. with sci-fi. Yeah, next week on the Bergcast, we're going <laughs> to talk about Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, which I've managed to avoid seeing to this day, and I'm not going to watch it. Back to you, David. Uh, all right, uh, Bergheads. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so the movie is different in the in the sense that Anderton, he's not the lead of pre-crime. Burgess is, who's Cito's character. Um, there's an inventor of pre-crime who comes into the story later. And so the precogs, they, they sit in their bath salt and they, and a ball comes out and then they have to rush and still solve the crime. And I did like, and think that it was a good aspect of the difference in the film that added more excitement and tension to it that once they get the the um the prediction ball, the the card is if you will, of this it's like a little lottery ball. ball. It's, it's so like a little silly. lottery ball. But once they get it, they have a short period of time between when that drops and the murderer actually happens. They have a short period of time and they have to solve the crime really quickly and yeah, go and get in it. In the in the story they have well over Oh, like a week. Uh, two days. Or, uh, yeah. They have a week in one case. Yeah. Which yeah they have is, a lot of time to solve the crime. You can put your feet up <laughs> and think about it. And I think... Go to the break room for some coffee. But here's the interesting thing about so, the differences, though, between the story in the book is... Sorry. Duh. The story in the movie is that in the book, you're kind of led to believe that they're, that when Anderton gets his slip in the crime he's about to commit, it's the first time they've had a murder in years. Whereas right. in the film, there's, there's always they're always rushing to smash through somebody's light, skylight. <laughs> and the reason right. after why the clock is because runs down. <laughs> after the fact, because in DC you wouldn't you wouldn't ever plan a murder because pre crime will get you. But if you're in a crime of passion, right, and you're going to murder somebody, there's only a short period of time. So that's why there aren't a lot of murders. But that's why it actually makes story sense right right and that and, was a also and i think that's that one is of the big things the, cool... the screenwriter was talks about in in one of his interviews scott frank scott frank talks about how he wanted to personalize this story instead of it being about these like about the, the, the military versus yeah. pre-crime he wanted it to be more about the people involved which is why tom cruise's character has a dead son and and why the first murder we see is a crime of passion and stuff like that. And, and there are aspects to that that I, I don't think that's the problem with the movie. Like, those are things that I think could have worked and should have worked. Well, it becomes a problem in the false finale. but Right, yeah. right. And that that that's a different – but I think that's a different problem. I don't think making it personal is necessarily the problem. I think that that was actually a smart move by Scott Frank. Sure. And that also adds to the stakes. It also makes it all like, you know, um, seen. And the idea that Anderton, <laughs> Anderton has, uh, 
in the story, he knows the guy whose name comes up. He knows who Leopold. Kaplan. No, he doesn't. Doesn't he? Doesn't nope. know who he is up oh, until he's kidnapped, and he figures he figures it he out figures as he's standing quick. there. Okay, that yeah, that's this right. is the this is Leopold well, Kaplan. He's, he's introduced to him. So. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> right. Okay. So and he doesn't know anything about the character in the movie either. It takes a little bit longer. The mystery is kind of dragged out a little bit more. Um, a little bit. Yeah, a lot of bit. A little bit. <laughs> so the the story of Minority Report, the movie, is definitely longer. It's more drawn out. You have more action set pieces. And the movie, the the running time of the movie is two hours and 25 minutes. And there's a point. Oh, right. Oh, my God. <laughs> and the biggest problem that i have with the movie and i and i know i looked at you guys as soon as it was over and said i like that movie a lot more two hours and 25 minutes ago (laughs) (laughs) because my memory of seeing it in the theater was pretty good and i i think also i could forgive a little bit more of its sins when i didn't know that there was still a half an hour left when i that the mystery was still there for the first viewing it was fresh it was fresher so i think i could hang with the two hours and 25 minutes a bit more although i know that even when i saw it in the theater in 2002 i thought it was too long and i think but isn't every spielberg movie just a little too long yes sometimes yeah so here's the here's the thing is that there is a false ending where we get to the basically we catch up with the murder and we get to the point where the murder happens. There's a whole storyline where he kidnaps one of the precogs and, and all that. And it could have very neatly ended with getting to the point of the murder and Anderton deciding not to commit the murder at the last minute. There's your climatic ending. Pre-crime gets basically is, is done is done and there's the end of your movie. And however, this movie still has another half an hour left. Oh my God. And that <laughs> half an hour comes down to basically Tom Cruise gets convicted. He gets put on ice. And then his wife figures out that he was innocent and that he was set up for the murder by Max von Sydow. <laughs> Big surprise. Sydow. 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 Yeah, so which is uh, odd because they thematically they've been going the same way as the short story, but this second climax is the is antithetical <laughs> to yeah, the short it, story. It, 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 it takes away the power of the minority report. Well, it the minority is, report the, has nothing to do with the movie. Yeah, so the minority report has no real purpose. Well, it's like that thing when people point out, and I hate this because Raiders of the Lost Ark is one of my favorite movies, but when people point out that if Indiana Jones hadn't been there, nothing would have changed. <laughs> <laughs> right? Because the Nazis yeah, right. would have gotten the Ark, they would have opened it, and their faces would have melted. Right? Yeah, the end result would have been, wow. Yeah. Huh. Wow, I never thought of that. Well, yeah. everything's a lie. I'm sorry. <laughs> My, sorry, my the end result would have been lie. the same. Next week on Burkhead's. Yeah. <laughs> we just uh, sect Raiders of the Lost Ark. That's <laughs> if they would have found it. Remember, Be- because of him, he, they were they were they got to look in the right area. Okay, okay. where they were looking in the wrong area before. That's so. true. They might not have found it without. This him. was funnier before you debunked that. 
Anyway. Right. Anyways, so so what they do what they do in the movie is they introduce a uh, a different um, plot uh, line. No, it's yeah. a different method of proving that uh, they they don't use the minority report. They use a different what technique to figure out oh, it was how the, things work. It was the false memory. It's, it, it's called the precog echo. The echo, yes, that's right. Which is not in the short story. No, and so there's an echo. So they, they replace the minority report with this other uh, thing. So why not just call it Echo based on a short story by Philip K. Dick? Right. Well, and here's the thing. Without that 25 minutes, I personally believe very firmly that if that movie ended right there, that it's actually an okay to, but it still wouldn't movie. it still wouldn't be minority report. Well, it would still be based on like he got to that point with the, I mean Agatha. they would they would definitely have to do some other things well, prior you, to that. You could fix a few things and yeah. And basically if you ended at that point, you have an okay movie. You have a a okay Spielberg, it, Phil well, K Dick movie, but when you add that 25 minutes, you ruin it and not only that but you add that 25 minutes, you add the stupid Echo storyline that just adds a whole other element of it. You you have the very unsurprising twist of Max von Sydow being the villain. Right. And then you have the hokiest way possible that his wife breaks him out of hypersleep, basically, <laughs> and brings him there to catch Sydow in the middle of a speech, which is like... Which is kind of reminiscent of the the end of the short story where they're at the podium and they're making a declaration yeah. and he do, and, and, and Anderton kills Kaplan. But in this, in this movie... Kaplan it, it, kills himself. Yeah, Burgess kills himself. We're getting there, dude. That, well, and it doesn't matter because that whole 25 minutes sucks. And yeah. That, that whole edition... You missed. Is... Um, <laughs> That whole addition of the twenty five minutes and the, the the false ending is just is the problem in my opinion. It is the well, worst well there problem. are other problems. I think it's one of the bigger problems, yeah. but it's not the problem. For you, me, you as admit- somebody who kind of likes the movie, that's the problem. But you have to admit, this movie does go through a lot of uh, talking and then action set piece and then just more useless talking and then action set piece and the more useless talking they explain things that don't mean anything well and but it's for, exposition that doesn't need to be there at all but see i like a lot of the action pieces and i do think that they're connected a bit to it the the last i i, I don't know i mean why the, did they break through the skylight <laughs> after he'd already tackled the guy yeah that is a problem <laughs> so and why we, did he throw off his helmet when he before he ran inside, so you could make see sense. Tom Cruise's face. <laughs> well, yeah, there are problems. Oh, okay, so look, the last thing I want I, I want to say is a huge difference between the story and the movie. And Scott Frank talks about this, and I have the quote here. So I thought to myself, how do you get behind someone who embraces a fascistic system? Why would someone ever believe that this is a good thing? Well, first, the situation in the world would have to be pretty dire. The murder rate would have to be out of control. More people would have to be dying from murder than natural causes, and there would have to be some kind of panic that forces us to embrace such an extreme loss of civil liberties. So that leads me to this movie came out in 2002. So they were in production or 
through some point of making the movie when 9-11 happened. And when the movie came out, you're, you have a country that's embroiled in the debate over the Patriot Act, which is the extreme loss of civil liberties. In light of horrific cir- circumstances. Right. And you have this whole system where they were going to basically make it legal to spy on people in really intrusive ways that were not legal before this time. So Minority Report, the short story, and the movie both become, even though it's a story that originated in 1954, became much more important of a concept to explore in 2002 than really the movie ended up doing. Well, and they they also had to abandon the uh, military versus police aspect due to the same thing because this is a time of extreme patriotism. Yeah, there's a lot of jingoism going on at this time. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, the military storyline, which is... You can't have the military be a villain. Yeah, it would not have... In that time. Yeah, not if you're Spielberg and Tom Cruise and you're two of the most powerful people in Hollywood that probably wouldn't have looked good. But... But I, I'll tell you, they... Yet we created... Yet we did this real shit cinematography. <laughs> but we don't want to offend the military. Okay. But... How, how do you really feel, Anthony? But the point... <laughs> but my point is, is it's really interesting that this movie really kind of addresses some of these civil liberty issues. And what Scott Frank was saying was one of the major reasons why he wanted to change the story is because he couldn't get behind the idea that Anderton would sacrifice himself for a system that was flawed or fascistic in his in inherently mm-hmm. evil as he viewed it. Yeah. So he changes Anderton completely to the guy who takes down the system. So you have your main character instead of sacrificing himself in the short story and in, in like to preserve the system. Right. So, I mean, how would Philip K. Dick feel? You think, I mean, I think Philip K. Dick would not be a huge fan of the Patriot Act to begin with. Probably not. No. Yeah. If he he was alive at this time. So it's kind of confusing. Like what paranoid drug doing intellectual. Yeah. Yeah. I think he'd be not not for it. (laughs) Right. And so. Yeah. He had that weird phase where he was like kind of like pseudo religious. We're getting way ahead of the dickheads here. (laughs) Um, But. But my thinking is, is would Phil, I think as much as I can't really tell, Scott Frank's basically saying he doesn't, I don't think Scott Frank's pro Patriot Act. And I think he was trying to express that feeling with this film. So I think to a degree that change in attitude is one that I think actually PKD probably would have been down for. You see what I'm saying? Like right. in 1954, he wrote a story where he, where the guy, the hero sacrifices everything to protect the system. I don't think PKD, if he was still alive in 2002. But he didn't write it. To, he wasn't just protecting the system. He was protecting the system from the military. Okay. I see what you're saying. Yeah. To a degree. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it was a, it's different, but it still wouldn't, you know, it wouldn't make sense in 2002 even if PKD were looking at it to say, oh, yeah, it's fine to be anti-military at this time. So, you know, I didn't really talk about this ahead of time, but I guess one way that we should probably end all these movie podcasts is to talk about how would PKD feel about this movie? And I know what you guys are going to say right off the bat. that You don't think. 
But keep in mind, a lot of people think that he, you know, he died having only seen a rough cut of Blade Runner. And there are a lot of people that think because Blade Runner is antithetical to some of the points that Do Androids Dream Electric Sheet makes, that he would not have liked Blade Runner, but he was down (laughs) for the movie Blade Runner. He expected some changes. And I think as a creator, I think overall, he probably wouldn't have been totally in love with this movie. But He would have hated all the advertisements. Yeah. Yeah, he probably would yeah. have hated that. You know, I'm not a big fan of that, but it didn't. that didn't ruin the movie for me. I know it really bugged you, Larry, but it didn't ruin the movie for me, personally. I, I think the point, and at that time, I think PKD would have been into the idea of it making a point about civil liberties. And and if you think about it, it's a bit of a subversive thing that in 2002, one year after 9-11, that, that Tom Cruise and Steven Spielberg made a movie that was completely about protecting civil liberties and, and like this kind of coded science fiction film about the the loss of civil liberties and I hadn't really thought about it there but, but well, I haven't I hadn't thought about that idea it, either and so in that sense it's a flawed movie it has terrible cinematography it's twenty five minutes too long it has really corny scenes like murder and, <laughs> and, and, and stuff like that but I'm gonna give it it, it parodies noir films yeah right. it's straight up parodies rather than homages but in light of the time of which it was released. And what it was trying to say, I still am going to give it three out of five stars. Um, three out of five precogs. <laughs> I'll give it two precogs out of five precogs. <laughs> I'm with Anthony on that one. Yes. Yeah. And look, three was and hard. And that's being kind. Yeah. I, I would say that's pretty generous. I think I'm being generous with the three. But the reason why I is because of the message and the time that when it came out. Because you cannot divorce a movie from when it was – I think you can talk about it then and you can talk about it now. But especially with big Hollywood movies, like I, I do think when it came out – Well, what, you know, we we didn't get into like complaining about the CG or anything like that. So CG you know, was, we, we've given it some, some allowances as it as it goes. Yeah, the CG was not great. Some things were better than others. I think the spider drones worked. I think the way that the CG enhanced the the Fincher style, like what about eyeball roaming. eyeball hobo? That was dealer. bad. That, that was, was goofy. That was really <laughs> was bad. Goofy. Yeah, um, you know, and 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 I think there was pluses and minuses to all those things, and they definitely shouldn't have used the bleach out process. But, you know, hey, Spielberg was trying to do something different and something new. And so give him a little bit of credit for trying. For the attempt. For the attempt. Um, and if you noticed, he's never used the bleach out process ever again. Yeah. Well, actually, that they right, used it so. in uh, Saving Private Ryan. Never saw it. Well, if they On did. The, uh, the, <laughs> in a, a sim- but it was a totally different scene that they were they were doing. It, the, was uh, that a flashback? Or? No, it was the Normandy Beach. They oh, washed right. that scene out entirely to make it uh, more realistic. Again, uh, next week on Bergheads. More... Yeah. <laughs> on the Bergcast. <laughs> I don't know, maybe... It's, I'm not know. starting as a Steven Spielberg <laughs> that came out, podcast. That came out prior to this movie, right? Uh, yeah, and yeah. Saving Private Ryan's a great... Yeah, that's a 90s movie. Wait, But somehow this check. movie... Whereas that, uh, that scene, the... Uh, the March on Normandy Beach, whatever you call it, the D-Day thing. 
I hate to sound, D-Day, Larry. I hate to make it. Yeah, I'm know not trying to be disrespectful. History. That um, that really worked because it was totally washed out. Whereas right. this movie is washed out in the faces, like he says, but the bra- backgrounds are really vibrant and oversaturated. Yeah, which is so- a big problem Anthony had with it. Oh yeah, when I we hated- were watching the movie. Oh god, I couldn't stand it. Everything's oversaturated. Everything's like brightly lit it looks like spilled milk i oh god right and the fog effects and yeah <laughs> well just saving private ryan is just a way better movie <laughs> let's well, be yeah. honest yeah. i mean he was just more in the zone and i think part of one of the reasons why spielberg was not kind of at the top of his game in this movie is because he was kind of trying things he'd never tried before and you know so it can't totally fault him for that you know like uh, yeah, you totally can. He's a professional filmmaker. <laughs> how can I you, will, how I will give you him credit. You can't fault him. I'll give him you credit. Can, Shut up. Give him credit for Shut trying. Up, 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 let me talk. <laughs> go ahead, Larry. No, go ahead. <laughs> no, no, please. No, I want to listen to you for a change. Um, I'll oh, give him sorry. credit. I'll give him. Sorry, credit. I'm gonna I'm gonna be playing uh, Fruit Ninja while you talk. So. Blah blah. <laughs> I'll now give him. I'll give him credit for trying something new. But that doesn't mean I have to like it, and that doesn't mean it was good. Yeah. All right. So let's wrap I think this that's up. It. Uh, Minority Report <laughs> uh, is not read the story. Don't watch the movie. Yeah, re- definitely read the story um, if if you haven't. Um, and I would say next time we're gonna have a lot more fun when we do our next movie because we're gonna do Total Recall. Come on, get your ass to Mars. It's going to be awesome. <laughs> so stoked. Get your ass to Mars. Ah! That, I, you know, Arnold does that a ton in that movie. And we, we ah. may or may not have a special guest on for that episode. That's true. We're working a on a mystery guest. We're working on a special dickhead. Like, yep. part-timer. But in the meantime... The world Jones made. So, see you next time on... Dickheads. Murder. <laughs> And remember to keep it paranoid. Paranoid. Stay paranoid. Yeah, that's what it is. Stay paranoid, everyone. (laughs) 